Our reading tonight is from the book of Luke, chapter 6, verses 37 through to 42. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is the first time that I've uh, preached during lockdown, so it's quite a, an unusual thing. To Normally you get a sea of faces that is always lovely to see, and perhaps not to see this evening, but somewhere sitting at home in comfy chairs and much warmer than we are here. There's a, a congregation that the Lord has brought together. So as we look into God's word together, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It's not just a story that we read and that we somehow enjoy it's the word of God and we pray that as we open up the word of God this evening together so you would truly speak speak into our hearts speak into our lives may we really hear this evening the voice of God amen if you've got your bibles or your iphones or your laptops or whatever open it to Luke chapter 6 and we're studying these these Lovely verses together, verses that record the the Lord Jesus Christ, his Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, or or maybe it's also known as the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel. And it's an abridged version of, of, of the Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a sermon that Jesus preached. He, he, he gathered, or a crowd gathered, a massive crowd gathered to hear the words of Jesus speak. And we this evening, wherever we are, at home or here in the church building, hear the voice of Jesus speak to us. It's as though we're sitting listening at his feet to the words that he, that he says. When Jesus was on the, on the Mount of Transfiguration with his three disciples, and suddenly his appearance changed to be glorious like the sun or like a flash of lightning, and there standing with him was, was Elijah and Moses, A cloud enveloped them and the voice of God spoke from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. God urges us to listen to his son. They're his words. So let's do all that we can do to listen to what Jesus is saying through his word. It's been a month since the last sermon on Luke chapter 6. So we need a tiny bit of a uh, a recap in a way, that, as I said, this is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, in many ways, is is a kind of template 
for the Christian life. It's like a blueprint as to what we should be. And as, as we, we measure ourselves up to this blueprint, we see that we, we've got a, quite a way, way to go, but it, it, it is something for us to aim to. This is what the Spirit of God is working in our hearts when we're believers. He is, he is changing us and transforming us into the image of God. And that, that's what the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain here is, is telling us to do things, to be things, and encourages on, on those things. And it, it starts off with, 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 the, with the, the blessed are, blessed are the poor, blessed are you hunger now, and blessed are you who weep now. And, and, and this is a description of a Christian, that we're poor, we weep, we hunger for righteousness. And, and as we measure ourselves up to these things in the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, we don't measure up. We, that's its purpose. It's not to slap us on the back and to say you're doing so well. It's to expose our, our helplessness and our need. Because that's where Christians need to be. Not, aren't we wonderful, aren't we great, aren't I good? But we need the Lord. Christians work well when they're leaning upon Jesus, when they're leaning upon God. And the Sermon on the Mount does that to us. It, it makes us to call to God to reshape us into the image that he, that he wants here. And, and the main emphasis is here is the outworking of this new life that God has given to us in Christ. And, and, and the, the final goal of that and the goal in this life is that we reflect God. If there's anything good in us, and there should be, it's a reflection of God. In the goodness that we see in one another, and Christians are good. When they reflect God, they're lovely. It's, there's nothing nicer than to be in a Christian's presence. You can, you can warm your hands on them. And those of us that have known saintly Christians, there is just God reflecting in them. It's beautiful. It's lovely. And that's what God, by his Spirit, is doing in us. And that's what the Sermon in the Mount is teaching, that we are to be merciful. See verse 36 in the passage just before ours. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And we know as Christians that God has shown us unlimited kindness, unlimited mercy and patience and forgiveness and love. And, and the Sermon is teaching us here, just as God has been to you, you be to one another and you be to the world. That the light that we take into the world isn't our light. We're not wonderful. We're not marvellous. But God is. And we reflect his light and his love. That's the introduction. So let's look together at verses 37 to 42. Quite a short passage, but it's packed with stuff. It really is. There's lots to learn here and there's lots to do and don't do. And we start off in verses 37 and 38 with, with two don'ts and two do's. The Bible is never afraid to start off with a negative. This is what you, something you mustn't do. We, I think 21st or 20th century, 21st century, we're afraid to like be a bit negative, aren't we? And to tell people not to do something. But the Bible is, is quite quick to tell us not to do things. Straight to the point. We know things that we shouldn't be doing. And, and, and the Lord is telling us here in verse 37, look at it together. The Lord says, do not judge, and then, and then do not condemn. So verse 37, do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. 
So, are we to take this literally? Are we to go around never judging anybody? Are we to go around never condemning anybody? It sounds so Christian, doesn't it? You can imagine that the Christian gathering there and, and, and somebody says something about somebody or a situation. Oh, we mustn't judge. We mustn't condemn. It, it, it's so like Christian, isn't it, in a way? Is that what God is saying? Is that what Jesus is saying here? We must never judge. We must never condemn other people. Well, obviously he's not, because that would be ridiculous. But what it does mean is that we should not be judgmental. That's, that's basically it. But just to prove a point, when some of you might be saying, some of you might be watching online and saying, but Phil, it says you shouldn't judge. That's it, full stop. It says you shouldn't condemn. Full stop. I take the Bible as it is. But that's not being correctly interpreting the word of God. Jesus, listen to the words of Jesus. Stop judging by mere appearance, but instead judge correctly. That's Jesus' own words. He's saying you must judge, but judge correctly, judge wisely. The Apostle Paul to his congregation there in Corinth, he said, are you not to judge those in the church? Expel the wicked person from among you. So Paul is there saying, you are to judge those people inside the church. That's what you should be doing. Expel the wicked person from among you. There is judgment and condemnation. So the Bible isn't saying that we shouldn't judge and we shouldn't condemn. And then in Philippians, that, that wonderful letter of love that is the most beautiful letter that Paul wrote. Listen to what Paul says. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. That's a very condemning language, isn't it? And Paul condemns them because they were dogs. They were evildoers. They were mutilators of the flesh. And they needed to be judged and exposed for what they were. So I could quote dozens of scriptures to prove my point. But it doesn't just mean that we should not judge, we should not condemn. There are times, graciously, when we have to judge and when we have to condemn. So we know what it doesn't mean. What does it mean when the Lord says, do not judge and do not condemn? It means that we must not have a judgmental and a, and a hypercritical condemning spirit or a condemning heart. You know people like that. We've all come across them and hopefully that's not us. The Christian heart should be the very opposite of that. The Christian heart should be something which pours out kindness and gentleness and goodness. We're told that this agape love covers over a multitude of sins. It doesn't go there with a finger, you've done wrong, and point the finger and, and is hypercritical. That our, our primary way of coming into people's life is to sh show God's love and goodness. Judgmental hearts are, are so quick to find faults in others, aren't they? We've come across judgmental people. They point the finger, they put people down, and they kind of like doing that because it elevates them. And we should not be like that. That's not the kind of judgment that we should be using. Our judgment is a kind and a gracious one that takes a long, 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 long time before we condemn people. The religious leaders of the day, the religious leaders that were in the crowd that Jesus was speaking to, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, 
they were like this. They were quite horrible. They were horrible to the people. They judged by fear. They, they put people down all the time and they delighted in that. Why does Jesus say, do not judge and you will not be judged? Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Two reasons, I think. One, because with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. The way that you treat others will reflect in the way that they treat you, in general. Not always, but in general. And that's true in life, isn't it? One or two nods. It is true. If we're kind and nice to other people, then generally speaking, they're kind and nice to us. It's just the way it goes. If we're a grouchy old neighbour that is a thorough pain in the neck to live next door to, then surprise, surprise, our neighbours might not be very nice to us. But if we're kindly and good and we overlook the fact that their dog's been in the garden again or whatever, and we learn to forgive them, then surprise, surprise, they're kind of nice to us too. And particularly within the church, if we're good and kind and nice to one another, then generally speaking, most people are nice to us. So do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. It's, it's a kind of rule of life, isn't it? And maybe if you're having trouble, people aren't being nice to you or people aren't being kind to you or people are condemning you, then try turning it round. And first of all, you be nice to them. You be kind to them. Approach them rather than aggressively saying you're so unkind, you're so horrible, try and be kind and nice to them and, and see maybe if you can get them to come back with kindness and, and niceness to you. So do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the golden rule of scripture, isn't it? Very easy to say, but not quite so easy to apply. So that's the first reason of what Jesus means when he says, do not judge and you will not be judged, do not condemn and you will not be condemned. The second reason, and we need to tread slightly, well, carefully here, but I think we need to tread there, is because we will be judged by God if we are judgmental and condemning, especially to his children, because it's wrong. Simple as that. It's wrong to be condemning and hypercritical and judgmental to God's children. They are precious to him. We must always remember that. No matter how much they rub us up the wrong way or they just drive us around the bend, they are God's children. That's the good thing about a church. It throws us all together and we're a hodgepodge, aren't we? And it's not always easy to get on. But we mustn't be judgmental and critical to each other. We must do all that we can to reflect God. God has been kind to these individual people. God has forgiven them their sins. God does not condemn them. And we must reflect that to one another. But if we don't do that, then there is a possibility that God will judge us in a, in a disciplined kind of way. Because he said, I, I don't want you to be like that. I don't want you to have that critical attitude to one another. So he will judge us. So don't judge and you won't be judged. Don't condemn and you won't be condemned. So that there's that side of things. God does judge us and condemn us. It's a father's love. It's discipline. God uses discipline. Otherwise, we'd never get things right. And we're not talking here of eternal judgment. We're not talking here of eternal condemnation. Not at all. We have been judged and declared not guilty in Christ. Finished. 
Job done. God declares us not guilty. The judge has already made the decision. We're free. We're not guilty. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Eternally, we are absolutely free and can smile. But in this world, in this life, God does judge us. And it's a fatherly love. It's it's a wise judgment. It's a gracious, loving judgment to keep us in his will and purpose and pleasure. Let me quote just one example from the New Testament. Again, it's the Corinthian church. They seem to be a difficult lot for the Apostle Paul, yet how much time and love he devoted to them. He didn't write them off. He he ministered to them. So the, the Corinthian church were behaving very badly as regards the Lord's Supper. They were getting drunk. They were treating it as like a party. And this was very, very wrong. This was dangerously wrong. And Paul said to them in in 1 Corinthians, For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, died. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under God's judgment. We, We need to bear that in mind. We don't need to go around saying that everybody that's sick or has died is, has been judged by God. That would be ridiculous. But we need to bear it in mind, especially to ourselves. Our God is a gracious and merciful Heavenly Father. But he is also a consuming fire and he is not mocked. We need to bear that in mind. So that's the do nots. Let's pass on to the do's. Let's be positive. Do forgive and do give. What what a blessing to be able to forgive, to let go of grudges, to let go of resentments and bitternesses and all those kind of things that that just like fester in our hearts. What a joy to become a Christian and then as you have been forgiven, so we learn to forgive others. What a a blessing that is of God to say, forgive. We must forgive. As Christians, this is the template. We must be people who forgive. Ben reminded us in the previous sermon of Corrie ten Boom that she was able to forgive the Nazi prison guard. It wasn't easy at all. But she, she sensed that this was something she should do and she did it. And there was a real joy in being able to forgive that person. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Verse 37, there it is. As before, people, people are ready to forgive those who have a forgiving heart and nature. Our very nature as Christians should be those who are ready to forgive. Somebody's done something against us, never mind. I do forgive you, not just as a kind of empty words, but we do forgive them. We're not going to hold it against them. We're not going to hold grudges. We're not, we're not going to keep a record of the wrongs. We genuinely forgive them. The Lord Jesus is telling us here, as Christians, the template, forgive one another. God has been merciful, gracious, and long-suffering to us. We must be the same with others. The Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Not that we want to merit God's forgiveness. It's It's a response, like the songs that we're singing. It's a response of love to what God has done for us and to us. It's, it's an act of devotion, isn't it? The, our willingness to forgive others, it's an act of worship 
because we have been forgiven so much by our Heavenly Father. Now, I know this is hard for some. I've spoken to brothers and sisters through the years who feel unable to forgive somebody that's done something atrocious to them. And I know maybe somebody that's that's hearing this now saying, you don't understand, Phil, you don't know. I can't forgive them. I just can't. I just can't. And for some listening in, maybe for some here, this this is really hard, really difficult. But the, the scriptures here need to be taken literally. We do need to forgive one another. We do need to forgive. And God, God is calling us here to forgive. This is one of those times when we can call into, into our need that lovely verse in Romans, all things are possible with God. You say, Phil, this is impossible. All things are possible with God. God is asking us to do this. So we can pray to the Lord, Lord, I'm finding this impossible Please help me. I call upon you who are asking me to do it. Help me to forgive whoever it might be. Okay, so do forgive. God, and the second one, the second thing that we're called to do is, 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 to, is to give, to give. God loves a cheerful giver. God has given us all things in Christ and we should reflect that in our giving. And, and as before, what, the way that we give, it comes back to us. Arsene and I have, have discovered many times, it's almost a joke, you, 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 you give something and maybe it's, it's you know, difficult to do that and then very soon what you've given is back again. Financially or whatever way that God is calling you to give. Give and it will be given to you. Given in generous quantities. Look at verse 38 together. Let's just look at that. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. How to describe some some abundance. This is the giving that God will give to you. Running over will be poured into your lap for the measure that you use will be measured to you. When I was preparing this sermon, I was trying to think of an illustration, and what came into my mind is the pick-and-mix counter in the supermarkets. There, there's a whole like bank, isn't there, of, of sweets. And you've got a hungry teenager going in there, and you buy your little pot for two pounds or whatever it might be, and you fill it with pick-and-mix. Have you ever watched somebody, maybe your own children, go there, they go to the pick-and-mix counter, and... They fill it. Small things at the bottom, bigger and bigger as you get up. Until at the top, there is the lid precariously balanced, isn't it? On the top of this, they go to the checkout. There's a couple of gummy worms hanging. It's pressed down. And this is the way that we are to give. And this is an illustration of the way that God has given to us. He's given us abundantly. And again, our giving, in in every respect, should reflect God's giving to us. Give and he will give to you. It will be given to you. Given generous quantities, good measure, pressed down. Don't be mingy in your giving. When Phil calls us to give to whatever it is, let's be generous in our giving. Let's be generous in the giving of our time, whatever it might be. God's generosity is phenomenal. We're not talking of prosperity gospel here. Give in order to get. But as before, it's worship. It's giving for the sheer joy and pleasure and the liberation that it brings to our hearts for it. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an attitude of our love. So see the pattern? The way we behave and live and act is very much the way that others and God 
will act and react to us. With the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. And then all of a sudden, in, in, in verse 39 here, it's, it's just as like Monty Python's and now for something completely different. It just seems that Jesus goes off at a tangent and, and gives us this parable, can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? Where's this come from all of a sudden? What's this about? But it is linked, and I can't help but think that the Lord Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the crowd here, those who are the guides. Those are the very ones who weren't doing these things. Maybe they pretended to, but they weren't. Can the blind lead the blind? No, of course they can't. Will they not both fall into the pit? Yes, they will. These blind guides, these teachers of God's people, they were hypocrites of the highest order. And Jesus, as he goes on in his ministry, exposes them more and more and more until right at the very end, he gives them both barrels. And it's incredible. You, you think that Jesus, gentle, meek and mild, not when he spoke to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law at the end of John. He gives it to them because he is judging them. He is the judge. So he's able to judge them. And he says, this is what they were. They were hypocrites of the highest order. And this, as Christians, is what we must never be. Hypocrites. It's the very opposite of what Jesus is calling us to be. They failed to practice what they preached. They did everything to be seen and applauded by people. They loved places of honour. They loved to be first. They loved to be seen to be important. They were self-righteous. They were proud. Blind guides, Jesus calls them, because that is what they were. They were exactly that, blind guides. He calls that to their faces a few months down the line. They were meant to be leaders and guides, but they shut the door of God's kingdom into, in people's faces. They refused to enter it themselves and they kept other people out that should have been guiding them in. They and their converts, Jesus said to them, were children of hell and they were staying there. They should be leading them out of that into the kingdom of God. This glorious, beautiful, wonderful kingdom. They were blind guides, blind fools, total hypocrites. Their religion was a sham and a fraud. Some of us were like that once, but we're not anymore because now our religion is real and genuine. We are in the kingdom of God. They, these people were full of hypocrisy and wickedness. and They were in the crowd. And you can imagine them getting a bit itchy under the collar as Jesus was exposing them to the people. They were listening to him preach and he exposes them. He outs them, as it were. Never forget that Jesus knows our hearts. I feel glad that he knows my heart. Some, some of the things that are in there, sometimes the motives, I, I just say, Lord, I'm so pleased that you know that. I don't want to hide it from you. The true believer doesn't want to hide anything from God. He really doesn't. He's very pleased that the Lord sees us completely. Brothers and sisters, we need guides in the Christian life. We can't go it alone. We need guides to teach us, to lead us the, the way of God, to show us the way to life, and then to, to, to teach us how to live and breathe and behave in that life, how to please God. We need guides and teachers. So choose your guides well. Choose them carefully. Don't follow any Tom, Dick or Sally in, in religious garb that, that, that speaks the speaks. They may talk the talk, but they will not walk the walk of the gospel because only a true believer can do that. And later on, Don, I think, is preaching next time. You'll know them by their fruit. 
And eventually, that's how we know who these blind guides are. The Pharisees and, and the teachers of the law, they couldn't produce this fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. They lacked all those things. But the true guide will, in some measure, be bearing that fruit. And, and, and again, so how do we choose good guides? How can we choose guides that spiritually see that see into this world that is unseen. How do we choose them, the, the guides that are not blind? It's not easy, is it? It's not straightforward. Church history is littered with people that, that sound so good and, and take people away with them, their guides, but in the end they pr- proved to be false throughout church history. And the, the people weren't stupid. They were, they were taken. You know, they, they are, they're dressed in sheep's clothing, but as Jesus says, they're wolves underneath. We need to be very careful, very graciously judgmental in a way as to who is going to be our guide, who's going to lead us. And I think verse 40, which sounds, it's a weird kind of verse. I think this throws a bit of light on it as to who we should choose. Verse 40, the student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Jesus maybe looks at the disciples here. He knows what's going to happen in their lives. This is early on in Jesus' ministry. This bunch of disciples that he's still gathering together. Fishermen, tax collectors. They're going to be the ones who are going to be the guides. Alison's touching her watch. That means that's my timing mechanism. I must draw this to a close. Choose your guides well. Exercise good judgment. The books that you read, the preachers on the web, the churches that we attend. I say that graciously. Choose your guides well. We are blessed here at BH with good guides. Thank God for them. Pray for them. Final section, we can deal with that very, very quickly. It's a humorous illustration of the man with a plank in his eye offering to take a speck of sawdust out of somebody else's. It must have raised a smile in the Galilean cloud. The application is obvious. Jesus is illustrating what he's been speaking before. Who is the sawdust remover? Who is the person with the plank in his eye? The answer is in verse 42. It's the hypocrite. The fraud, the play actor, the so-called soul doctors. So concerned about the faults in others. They're the ones that hear this sermon of Jesus and think it applies to everybody else but them. So having been measured up against this pattern, this template of the Christian life that's here in the Sermon on the Plain, do you feel yourself to be rather poor in spirit? Do you long and hunger for a greater Christ-likeness? Could you weep sometimes at the standard and the obedience of your faith? Then welcome to the kingdom of God. That's what a Christian is. The Lord Jesus and the the Sermon on the Mount has described you. And and what does he say? He says you're blessed. He says you will one day be fully satisfied. You will laugh, though now you weep. You will rejoice and leap for joy and receive a great reward. Absolutely certainly, you will. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, online, in the church, let's spur one another on to, not to pull one another down, but spur one another on towards love and good deeds, encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day of the Lord's return approaching. To him be glory, praise forever and ever. Amen. Amen.